This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. It's also important to note that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs and theirs alone. Not everyone will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say. So please try and keep that in mind. Today's podcast is my guest's version of events. And there'll always be others who see it differently. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I still pinch myself, but thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. A missing person's job is possibly the hardest job to do at all to investigate because there's nobody, there's no crime scene, there's there's nothing and you're starting with nothing. Today's guest is one of the reasons I loved working at the Missing Persons Unit so much. Helen was part of a very special team and held an incredibly important role in the squad as well as providing some much needed humour. But Helen was more than that to me, and I'm sure she never realised it. But she was the calming influence in an often hectic environment. I talk lots about gut feelings in policing, and Helen had it by the bucket load. She had the best gut instinct radar I've ever known. Helen was the missing person unit analyst 
And I've spoken a lot about the importance of an analyst in any investigation, but particularly major investigations such as like Maria Corp or uh, John Sharp, the Mornington Monster, for instance. Helen, as the analyst, she'd monitor all reported missing persons in the state and every now and then one would catch her eye. She'd feel her heart skip a beat and her tummy do a little bit of a turn. <laughs> she just knew something wasn't right, something wasn't adding up. She'd then print out the report. She'd walk into the boss's office, put the report on his desk and say something along the lines that, I think you'd better have a look at this. I do not remember a time that Helen did that and she wasn't right. She's bought peace to many families after managing to identify their missing loved ones who'd fallen through the cracks. The identification process was long and laborious, heart-wrenching at times, but Helen and her sergeant were able to help the family say goodbye when it seemed no one else cared. Because there's families affected by these situations, Helen and I today are going to refer to them only, say, by their first names or a name that we knew them as in the squad. The last thing we want to do is bring up painful memories, and this is purely out of respect for the families. But it was when Helen transferred to the sexual crime squad as the analyst that she realised maybe it was time to hang up her handcuffs and that lovely handbag that we'd all been given at the academy and do what I didn't do, leave on her own terms and retire peacefully with no regrets. So with that introduction, Helen, uh, thank you for joining us and hello. Well, hello, uh, Narelle. I just um, thank you for inviting me here to speak with you today. I, I hope I can live up to that wonderful uh, intro. Um, don't don't let me down because just remember that I do have a variety of photos about you that I can upload to Facebook, all right? Oh, gee, Helen, you're right. There is one in particular. <laughs> every time for the, listeners, for the listeners, every time we meet, we have a squad reunion or whatever it be, Helen has always got this particular photo and it's possibly the worst photo ever taken of anybody on this entire earth. I don't know what happened, but it looks like, I think Helen has done a bit of, um, oh, what do you call that when you muck around with a photo, but I've got no teeth or it looks like I've got no teeth. Photoshop. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Uh, I forgot about that, Helen. No, that's new. you a la natural. <laughs> I do have teeth, Helen. I've got a full, full set of teeth. <laughs> well, we are getting, we're both getting oh, older. we are, we are. Hey, just speaking about the Academy, do you remember that black handbag? Um, look, I I was looking back, you joined actually a few months before I did. Yeah. And um, they had phased out the handbag, so I never got oh, one. Oh, I've got a spare one. And it's one of the things I've missed in my career. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a spare one here. <laughs> and yet that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> I only wear it to fancy dresses and that. You would never take it out, seriously. Um, anyway, so let's move on. We could talk about that. Gee, you've, you've really thrown me about that photo because I think that it, that was where I'd been to um, – I'd had to go to a, a church or a, a somewhere where I had to have my – A mosque or something. A yeah. mosque, that's right, yes. And I had to wear a scarf. That's right, Yes. Scarves don't really suit me, do they? You'd have to say no with that photo. No, I, I have to agree with you there. <laughs> oh, thanks for that, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All good. 
Um, so, how long were you were, were how long were you a member of VicPol? I managed to do my full thirty years. Oh. So it was um, it was yeah a long time. You know, thirty years is a long time. And what what I did was I had a I had a two to five year plan. And uh, after about two years, I thought, no, that's it, I'm, I'm done. And that was just enough to get me up to my 30 years. And I thought, I'm out of here. That was enough. <laughs> well, 30 years in that job, Helen, it's um, something that I hope you're very proud of because, oh, I don't know, there's not a lot of us that get to 30 years. Well, I was three years short, but 30 years and be able to walk away like, like you did, I think that's, um, I hope you feel proud of that because you should be. Thank you. You, you know, you, you take you always take stuff with you, and I certainly have. But um, I guess that's what we're here to talk about today. Yeah, we are. Um, I suppose looking back, so that means you joined in nineteen eighty seven. Would that be right? Uh, January eighty eight. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you um, your first thoughts about being a policewoman um, and uh, why you joined. How did you find it all? Um, look, I'd, I'd always wanted to join, um, you know, even as a, a teenager. Um, but in those days, you had to be 21. So um, I was very involved in my sport, and I went over to Europe and played. And then when I came back, I um, I just followed followed that dream up really, and and um, and joined and got in luckily uh, because I was um, 33 by then, and there was a cutoff point of 34. So I just had the one shot at it. If I failed, I was out um, and I wouldn't have time to get another go at it. So, um, yeah, I managed to get through. I was pretty lucky. Um, actually, you've just reminded me. You were very good. What was the sport that you went overseas to play? Do you feel comfortable telling us? Don't worry if you don't, but you were very good at a, p- a particular sport. Oh, I, I played a yeah, I played a little bit of basketball overseas, but yeah, it was all um, it was wonderful um, time I spent over there, and uh, yeah, that's why I was a bit older when I came back and uh, and joined so late. Helen, not everybody can say I played a bit of basketball overseas. <laughs> can you expand on that a well, little? <laughs> um, okay, um, I didn't make the Australian side here. And um, so I had an opportunity to put in for a job overseas in Germany and I went over for two years and uh, I stayed for seven. So, um, yeah, saw a lot of Europe and um, played a lot and started to coach and came back here and I started coaching here too before I joined uh, the police force and uh, gave gave sport away really, uh, or that, that level of sport. Yeah. So that would have made it very easy for you uh, to join because when we joined in 1987 or when I did and you in 88, we had to be pretty fit and we had to be able to um, leap tall buildings with a single bound. You wouldn't have found that very difficult, I imagine. You would have been in your prime. Would that be right? Yeah, pretty much. I was I was very, very fit. Um, and actually the training at the academy made me lose fitness. Um, they didn't, you know, they, they didn't structure it very well, I didn't find. But, um, yeah, I was, I was very fit when I went in. And so, as I said in my intro, I talk a lot about analysts in a, an investigation and how important they are. So what was it that drew you to become an analyst? Had you always been ad- analytically minded? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. I, I had 
I did my my first seven years out in the van, like everybody has to out at um, busy um, suburban stations in a, in a Melbourne stations, and I really had no desire to become a detective. I sort of felt I I wanted to solve the puzzle, you know, the the puzzle of the crime. Um, I remember a detective. <laughs> used to tell me there are only two kinds of people, detectives and people who want to become detectives. <gasps> I particularly thought he was a little twerp, but um, let's move on. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, Helen, that is, that is a very, very typical, what I would say a typical comment from a detective. With all due respect, I was one myself, but I think that is a very common or was particularly back, you know, back then that detectives thought, pardon me, their own shit didn't stink. And as you say, um, you either are a detective or want to be. That's the only two. Like how offensive, really, when you look back? Like, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but as I say, that you know, there, there were a few of those uh, detectives around and uh, and then again there was a few like your good self who were, uh, were excellent and did a lot of work, you know, worked with the analysts instead of uh, against us. Mm. Because often, uh, this is uh, probably a bit uncomfortable for you, but I would have to say that often analysts were, back in my my day, they were often looked upon as second rate, weren't they? Like they weren't looked upon as such an integral part of a team. Like they they were almost, um, oh, don't worry about them. It, that sounds offensive, but that's what it was like, wasn't it? It was, yeah. You, you, you did get um, left behind in, in a lot of instances. Um, and But, you know, you look at the training that um, that we had to do was uh, was just as much as, as you know, your training as uh, detected to become detectives part of the detective training course we had to do as well and then we went on to do um, you know further analy- learn further analytical skills um, on how to use different um, software products and everything and it was never it was never stopping you're always learning something new yeah mm. really you'd have to say that it's it's um another skill like being a detective is a skill that you learn being an analyst is a skill I just don't understand where that um, mindset came from because oh, as I've you know banged on many times it was just such an integral part but that's true anyway, we could talk about that forever Helen um, so we could we could talk about a lot of things forever um, so what can you explain the responsibilities and tasks of an analyst and how your skills are utilised during an investigation? Um, sure. Firstly, let me tell you, it is certainly not like law and order where you get, um, you know, half an hour to get your phone checks back and you solve the case. It is not <laughs> like that. Those damn phone checks are sometimes the death of you. They take yes, day, yeah. days and or weeks to get back and then days and weeks to uh to work them out, to read them, it's yeah, that was they're pretty horrible. But um, yeah, being an being an analyst is basically um, it's the intelligent intelligence process. So I'll just quickly tell you that it's um, it's like you collect it's collection. So your statements and your inf- all your information that comes in you those call charge records. Then you have to um, evaluate that information, and then you have to cross reference all that information. Then you have to look at it all, and then you have to tell the detectives about it. So that's basically, in layman's terms, what it, what it's all about. You're making 
often a, a chart or a document that the detectives can then take to court with them um, because a jury always likes to look at a picture. Um, that tells them a lot more than all those words do. Um, and, yeah, and basically that's what, that's what we're about, finding, gathering all the evidence, putting it all together and looking to see if, where the holes are. And detectives then go out and find, fill those holes up again too. Because the amount of information that can come in, and this is just for uh, not even a major investigation, just any investigation, the amount of information that can come in um, can can be enormous. And somebody has got to manage that information, don't they? Because otherwise uh, it gets lost and you know in the ether. That's right. A lot of the information that comes in is in the form of an information report or um, uh, so someone will ring up and, and you, you put it in a report and that report get, gets numbered and so it, it should never get lost um, within, the, within the job. Um, and then you have to just cross-reference everything that's in that information report to find out if that person that rang up was just a nutter um, or, um, or they had some you know, real good information in there. Mm. And that that was a skill in itself, wasn't it? To when you did assess the information that came in, you were the one, I suppose, that had to really determine whether this was somebody that was after a bit of um, or fame, or they were, as you kindly referred to them as as a nutter. Um, but you did have to assess that information, didn't you, to to um, work out whether it was of help to the uh, investigation or whether it could take us off on a, a you know a different path. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. Um, like uh, for example, you, you mentioned before about um, the society murders. Um, one of the, one of the pieces of information we we got there was um, uh, that someone had seen. Down, down the beach where the vehicle had been found, an elderly couple buying dip in a supermarket. Um, well, that caused oh, us. That's right. Oh, yes. that's right. Yes. Yeah, that uh, that had, that caused us days of of, um, of looking at uh, CC uh, the uh, footage to um, to mm. see if we could find them in the in that bloody supermarket, and um, you know, it just happened to be an old couple who were buying dip. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but we found we found that couple buying the dips, didn't we? Yeah, I think we did. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah, it, clearly it wasn't them. <laughs> um, but just for the listeners' information, that's very true. I'd forgotten about that. But uh, what Helen's talking about there is the society murders. It was Margaret and Paul Wales King. That's right. And uh, basically, they were um, murdered by uh, their youngest son, um, who just. Uh, what would you say, he became uh, obsessed with the fact that he thought his mum was using money as a bargaining tool with him and his uh, other siblings. But um, that's that's a great example. That's right. All the information that comes in, that older couple buying the dips, I think it was in South Melbourne or Port Melbourne or something Somewhere like that. There, yeah. But it, it did, but it took us off on a tangent, as you say, for days. But that sort of information you cannot... Um, just sort of uh, ignore because if that, what if it was them and they're not dead and they've just decided because that was something we were always thinking about, weren't we? Whether they had gone away on a holiday, they just needed a few days away from everybody. So that's right. Yeah, yeah, great, great example. Yeah, 
And just one other thing I wanted to um, touch on there when you were talking about phone checks. Now, the the listeners won't um, uh, appreciate that years and years ago, when you wanted to do a phone check, if I wanted to check uh, who Helen had been calling and Helen was a, you know, say a person of interest or a suspect or something, you could just ring the telco. They'd say, yep, this is, here you go. And they'd print it all out and they'd send it off to you. And, and it could literally take, oh, I don't know, maybe an hour at the most. But, but then it all changed. And then we had to go through the process of actually applying for a warrant, uh, which means we had to do, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Helen, but we had to do an operation order, like the paperwork just to know whether somebody had made a call at 3pm on this particular day, that would take a week. So, yeah, some of it did. Um, we had to go through an, uh, an inspector uh, to get permission to um, to do it and you had to have a, a good reason. You couldn't just say, oh, look, I want to have do so-and-so's phone um, because you had to, you know, basically swear it under oath that um, uh, it was true and correct what you were doing. Um, and also then you had to get it past the inspector, the cost of it, and the cost was just astounding what the um, the telcos used to charge us. That was another thing that sort of sometimes stopped us getting, getting call charge records, just the cost was amazing. That's right, yeah. But And did we have to, am I wrong there, did we have to get a warrant? We did, didn't we? Um, not not on just those calls. If we wanted to put in a, okay. uh, if we wanted to put in for a um, a listening device or anything like that, then um, that was that was the full gambit. You had to, um, yeah, you had to go to court and, and and put in an affidavit and and go through the court and swear it and the whole everything. Yeah, you don't, you don't just you can't just you know turn on someone's phone and listen. It just doesn't work that way. And that's and that's to protect you know your general you know, Joe Blow, you can't just have everybody listening to your conversations. No, but isn't it a shame that we as the police aren't trusted enough because obviously people have uh, gone uh, round the back door and done the wrong thing, which meant that all of us suffered and that we had to um, go, you know, through the correct procedure because somebody had, um, oh, gone over their level of authority or whatever it be, uh, <laughs> I just... It's just, it was ridiculous, the process, ridiculous. But anyway, um, so does it, just for the listeners, does every police station have an analyst? And if not, why not? Um, no, there's, there's just not enough of us. Oh, I should, I should look at that, I'm still saying us. Um, <laughs> I, I, I guess you never lose that feeling, you know, once in the job, you're always in the job, I think. Um, uh, no, it's it's more a specialist position, and um, they're always placed where they're most needed. Um, all the larger squads uh, in the crime department have at least one, but sometimes up to four. And out in the districts throughout Victoria, they have them in uh, central intelligence hubs. Um, but uh, you know, over the last five years, I'm sure I'm unsure what uh, what changes have been made. Um, I'd like to think they're they're putting more into intelligence now than they did uh, when I was there. Oh, I think they are. I think we've realised the importance and, and like the um, the intelligence you can gather from, I don't know, social media now from yes. all these different, um, we didn't have them back in our day, but an analyst, what you could get from an analyst these days, as you said before, something about CCTV footage and all that sort of stuff. Gee, there's a lot of information out there, isn't there? Mm. There is, yeah. Uh, so could you tell us um, about an investigation 
you've obviously been uh, involved in a lot, but is there one that um, stuck in your mind for a particular reason? Um, oh, look, many, many stick in your mind, but I suppose doing the, the missing persons, a lot of those did. Um, there was one I was looking into, a historical cold case job of Veronica Green. That was on uh, the Channel 9 program, Missing Persons Unit, and speaking to the, the daughters, it was just so emotional and um, we, we managed to locate a brother that they were unaware of. Inquiries took me, you know, into the outback of Australia. I never solved it. Uh, it was shattering for the girls and I, and I, I felt like I let them down, especially when Missing Persons Unit was shut down and I could no longer work on the case. Um, that, yeah, that, that's always sticks with me, Veronica Green. And um, although I do believe recently there was um, further investigation, but I, I haven't heard the outcome of that. Yeah. And, and another one that um, that always sticks in my mind was there was a, um, a young woman went missing and um, we un- unfortunately we found her deceased. And going back to those um, call charge records, that was solved by call charge records. We, I got the call charge records and um, it put him using a phone tower, put, it put the person, that the, the suspect, at, uh, at a park nearby. And um, I went to Vodafone and I spoke to a technician and, and he said, look, I can confirm the location of that phone if he attended the site. And he came out to uh, the, the uh, western suburbs with us and, um, with my sergeant. We went to the point there and, and he uh, he showed us where the where the bloke would have been and what uh, tower and that's what uh, what caught our, our man. So that, that you know, using um, technical stuff like that was also quite satisfying, you know, and it, and it sticks and that sticks in my mind for that poor woman that was uh, that was there in that uh, in that car. Mm. Oh, uh, you were talking before about the emotional toll that um, policing had on you. You sort of um, you indicated that um, there was a few. Is there a particular investigation which uh, you, that did take a a lot of um, a toll on you, an emotional toll. Um, look, the Mornington job that that got me, and uh, just listening to you and and Kira uh, not long ago um, discuss this job, um, I, I I remember listening to you retelling the story of how you saw a flash of blue on that last day, and um, and and how you found it was Gracie, and my feeling of guilt because I stayed in the office. Um, I didn't go out to the tip. Um, but, you know, things had to continue on in the office. You know, I, I had to look at things every day. Um, um, but one of the things I did do on that, again, was a tower plotting. And um, I worked out how he'd used her phone to ring his phone separate from each other and making out that she was calling him. And, you know, that just gave me that feeling, you know, got you, you bastard, you know, I got you. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I can, there's so many uh, different avenues we could go down, isn't it, with the Mornington Monster because that was uh, one of the biggest jobs that I'd ever been involved in. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and you know, H, I, I've never, ever thought of what you just said then, that you suffered 
um, terrible guilt from being in the office and not being down there. It's funny, but when you're down there, like you, you're not thinking of anything else but what your job is. And I don't think, oh, I do apologise, but I don't think I ever thought of what everyone else was doing back in the office um, other than I knew you were working your backside off, mm. uh, you know, with the, with the phone records and everything. But I never – that's something I've never, ever thought of, that guilt. And I, I get that. I mean, it, it's not – your job is to uh, collect, you know, do all that analytical information, but, yeah, I'd never thought of that. Yeah, yeah. The other, the other part of that job is Kira spoke of this too, of being in that, um, in that little room, in the one-way mirror there. And um, I remember, I remember watching him when he said uh, that he had to go and have a whiskey to get up the courage to go and do it. And by that, he meant to kill his daughter. And um, you, you, you don't get that scene. I, I will see him talking and saying that. I will see that forever. I can just relive that moment ever, forever. We're all standing there watching that. Yeah, we were. It was terrible. And uh, I've spoken about that a lot in um, my presentations. And just for the listeners, uh, most will know that what we're talking about is the Mornington monster, John Sharp, who killed his wife, Anna, and his little daughter, Gracie, with a spear gun. Um, But Kira and I... When we relived that, when we did that other podcast, oh, that was, you're right, it all came back to me. It, it was very difficult, Kira and I, I suppose you've heard it, but Kira and I got very emotional with a whole lot of things. But you're right, Helen, that that time watching him talk the way he did with no emotion whatsoever and I think were you in the? We went to the toilet. There was I know there was Kira and myself, and our sergeant. And I know we went into the toilet because he was having a break or something. And I can remember all of us having our basically our head in our hands and like, oh my god, we just never heard anything like that. Yeah, no, I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't go with you on that occasion, but. Um... Isn't it funny? We didn't want to show our emotions in front of everybody. Isn't that just like when you think about what he was saying and how he was saying it so coldly and matter-of-factly, anybody would be affected by that. But we had to like control ourselves and go into the toilet to actually, um, you know, let out a a bit of emotion like is just crazy, isn't it? Yeah, you don't want to look weak or soft, God forbid. I've said many times, I remember Luch Rovis, uh, he was an inspector at the Homicide Squad, and it was just this interview, the whole uh, 412 St Kilda Road knew he was in there, and I felt in a really strange way very, very privileged to be involved and to be able to watch um, uh, Rocky and Kenno do that interview, I still don't know to this day how they did, but it was almost a privilege, wasn't it, to witness. It was. That was amazing. Yeah. <clears throat> just you just take your hat off to how they they kept their cool and just just kept directing the questions and it was it was quite amazing. It was amazing. Considering that they both had a uh, a daughter or daughters yes. 
the age of Gracie at the time, like it, oh, it still, you know, gives me goosebumps. But I always remember Luch Rovis, God love him. Um, hi, Luch, if you're listening, <laughs> and he put his hand on my on um, one of the sergeant's shoulders, and I thought, if you do that to me, Luch, I'm going to completely lose it. Yeah. And he didn't, thank goodness. But if he would have, I would have, you know, fallen in a heap. Oh, it was. But you're right. That was um, something I will never. Well, nobody involved in that will ever forget that. Um, no. So, what's your proudest moment as an analyst? Um, I think when I left. I left the uh, drug squad and I got asked to come across a missing persons unit and we were setting it up again. It had been left with, on a previous, uh, they'd done it previously and, and they'd let it just drop away and they thought, they realised, I think it was Inspector Whitmore, that's right, he was um, he was of the opinion that we, we needed to get this up and running again because there were too many um, suspicious disappearances, you know, going through the cracks. So... Um, and that we had a transfer of, uh, from the old computer system in 1990 onto Leap, the, the, the computer system that, were, that we were using in the early 2000s. And um, when my – so as my sergeant and myself um, sort of started to, to get a handle on, on what was in the computer and uh, we had a look and it worked out there was about 3,000 missing persons and they were dating back to, to 1960 and a lot of them had been marked as pending which meant that no investigation was was being done. Um, so we looked at each one individually and um, signed off on most of them. We got left with about 450 um, that we had all marked as active. All the others we'd either located the person or uh, had found a death certificate for. Um, we then broke all them down into categories of drownings, mental health, and then the suspicious so and then we went from there and many of the drownings hadn't uh, hadn't had an inquest uh, done on them um, one being Harold Holt um, a prime minister he had he had uh, he had drowned and um, a, a, um, an inquest had never been done into him Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, and as we went through what? and found, sorry. Why not? Why wouldn't they have done an inquest on Harold Holt? It was, it had all the hallmarks of why you would uh, have an inquest. Um, who knows why? There were, there were just many that hadn't been done. That was, it was sort of like, oh, yeah, the person drowned. Everybody knows he's drowned. There's his body. He's been, he's, you know, he's had his funeral. Um, that's enough. You didn't really need to know anything more. But legally, you need to have an inquest. You need to um, have a legal, the legal word that this person has um, is deceased by drowning. It, it could have been proved that um, a submarine did take him away. Um, it could, it as- could have been. Um, the, look, I, I, reading the file, I saw that little chip of pink paint on the rock. I'm sure it was a pink submarine. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I shouldn't laugh because, you know, obviously there's family out there of Harold Holt, but, like, it just seems ridiculous that they wouldn't have an inquest. But as you say, it wasn't just Harold Holt, and that was a bloody Prime Minister. Look, so why That's why right. would they have an inquest yeah. for, you know, the bloke down the street who went missing? Yeah, well, that, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so as, as we went through then and we found all these suspicious ones, we, we handed them out to the new guys who were on the floor. Um, so whilst I was doing all this, if, if uh, current investigation uh, suspicious ones would come in and um, they're the ones that I'd go to the boss and say, oh, I don't like the look of this one, and you guys would then be off and running and we'd start up a, a new investigation on, on, um, on that. Um, so getting, getting all this organised, I suppose, all the, the missing person side, and then we looked at the unidentifieds and we only had about, 20 on the books. Um, so then we had to start, you know, we knew that couldn't be right. Uh, so then I went to the coroner's court and we found another 120-odd um, and we put them in, an, in another spreadsheet so that I could compare the two. Um, and that was where, when it sort of all started to come together. And uh, then we had um, so much so much luck then with, um, with identifying a lot of these people. It's, it's not luck though, Helen. Well, yeah, I suppose, yes, it's true. Mm, it's not luck. Uh, just before we go on, I just wanted to clarify there, uh, just for the listeners, you said that when John Whitmore, when you started this, uh, th- this new system or that you were a lot of uh, information hadn't gone onto the computers, you said that um, they'd let it drop away and we had to get this thing up and running again. Can you just explain um, that was the missing persons unit? Can you just go into that a little bit that it had uh, sort of it was missing persons and then it was disbanded and then it was, wasn't it? That's right, yes. That, that had various um, forms of missing persons units um, and uh, after a few years they, they let it fall, fall away and then they started it up again. Um, and we started up there in 2000, 2001, somewhere there. Uh, so they had a, a senior sergeant, a sergeant and myself doing the actual just the missing persons. Um, we'd, I'd check them daily 
and and you you had to check them daily too because you had to you had to look at each one and and the, a lot of the reason why they kept closing missing persons down is is again it comes back to to cash where do you spend your money and a, a person goes missing and they go missing out in a particular region and so that region should be in charge of looking after that investigation and should pay for that investigation. Once once you started a missing persons unit, which was attached to the crime department, then funds from the crime department then paid for that. They paid for my wage and the sergeant's wage and all those CCRs that we're telling you about, you know, putting in for. So that comes out of the crime department budget then. So, and if you left it out uh, within the within the the different regions, only young um, police officers got to to investigate them. And, you know, I, I would read stuff, you know, I used to keep notes. I remember one was um, a young 17-year-old female and she said the last time she was located she was in St Kilda. Um, she was prostituting herself. Um, she has a missing, uh, she has a heroin habit, uh, but there's nil concerns for her welfare. You know, uh, okay, nil concerns for really? her. Really? Yes. There's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How, how could that be? <laughs> and there's there's so many, so many. Um, you, you know, some of them you just you know used to just laugh at. You know, like, um, like um, the girl goes missing, um, and the 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 boyfriend says, "Oh, look, yeah, she's um, she's taken off, but she's very streets streets uh, smart. Um, no concerns for her welfare, except when you start to look at the the um, the boyfriend." He's got 14 pages of of, um, of priors for assault. Um, <laughs> you know that's the sort of thing that was then being marked as uh, as okay, and 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 they're the ones that I I picked up and made either that um, or requested that uh, officer to continue on with the investigation and not accept that, or uh, or hand it over to to the detectives in my office if if I thought it was uh, worthy. Mm-hmm. You just said then that when you and the sergeant um, with these 3,000 missing people from 1960 and you um, dwindled it down to, I think you said there was, I did a quick maths, about 150 unidentified missing, uh, no, unidentified, was that bodies or missing people? or No, there was, we had about 450 um, on our books. Uh, missing persons and about 150 bodies or part bodies on our books. Um, and that's all that we had found from searching um, LEAP, uh, which was the computer program we were using at the time, and going to to the coroner's court and getting uh, the information that I, I could out of them at the time. Um, you know, the, you know they, they weren't very helpful at that time. I don't think they, they knew... Um, what was going on? Where you know a lot of the stuff where where it was the reports, um, and it took a lot more organisation to to get them on board. To um, and then and then that's that's a whole other story. What happened after that? Though I do, unfortunately, I sort of get what you were saying about with um, you know the seventeen year old where she's um, uh, started prostituting herself, she's taking drugs. Last time she was seen was in St Kilda. If you were a Connie 
on the van at St Kilda, you would get that job. It generally wouldn't be the detectives at that point. You would the Connie does the initial um, uh, investigations, but with them um, overseeing by a detective. But really, back in you know, oh, I don't know, the early nineties, I suppose, late eighties. A missing person was sort of like you'd only do that job if you had nothing else to do. Like That's it right. wasn't seen. You know, it was. It just was. It didn't command a lot of attention, did it? No, everybody just thought, oh, well, they'll come back or whatever. Um, but in, in actual fact, a, a missing person's job is is possibly the hardest job to, to do at all to investigate because there's no body, there's no crime scene, there's there's nothing, and you're starting with nothing. And um, and then you hand that over to the detective and say, well, this person's gone. Find her, uh, him or her. Yeah, very, yeah, very, right. very difficult mm. jobs, as you well know. I do, I do. Now, there's a few of those cases that really stuck with you, didn't they? Um, for instance, I'm thinking about the young Austrian man. Could you tell us a little bit of background about, say, the young, that young Austrian man? Yeah, what happened there was once I, once I got these um, – these sheets up and running. On there, I found a, um, a uh, the young man had uh, committed suicide down on the down in the dock area, and um, I had a, a photo of him. And uh, I was just looking at the dates, and um, and then the next day, I got a, a request from New South Wales for proof of life checks for a person that had been reported missing from Austria, last seen in New South Wales. So you have to go. Um, a proof of life check is when you're preparing a brief for the coroner, so you have to prove that he's not alive anywhere in Australia. So once I got that request, I look at the dates, and it was a day out from when my man um, had been located. Um, so then I got his um, uh, a picture sent over from Austria, um, and I got his dental records, and um, it had been eight years um, since his body had been found to this proof of life check. Um, so he'd been, uh, he'd been missing for eight years. Um, so once I checked it, I thought, this is him. I, I was pretty certain it was him. And uh, there were no dental records had been taken from the body. So all I basically had was a picture of the deceased man who'd been in the water for a number of hours and another picture of this young man when he left home years, years earlier. Um, and uh, we found his body. He was buried out at Springvale Cemetery in a pauper's grave. Um, the, the cost to uh, ex- exhume a body is, uh, is, is, is extreme, tens of thousands of dollars. The unidentified bodies were supposed to have been buried on the top and known persons were supposed to be buried underneath. And, and they'd normally go down to about four deep. Unfortunately, this wasn't the case, and we had to exhume three other persons to get to our man who was down the bottom. Um, and, the, and the other persons were also re, reburied in new coffins with, with, with dignity. Um, the, the odontologist, the dentist from the uh, coroner's court, Tony, uh, what an amazing man. Um, he, uh, he was just brilliant in, in the work he did in, in helping uh, Victoria Police um, identify all these bodies. He was standing there with me at the gravesite, and um, as soon as we got the body on the surface, he had a, a quick look in the bag at, at the uh, the mandible, the, the jaw, and his eyes just lit up, and I, I, I knew we, we, 
we'd identified him. We had him. And, um, yeah, that was amazing. And um, we did we did further checks and um, and we contacted the family uh, in uh, Austria and um, they repatriated his body home and they held a service for, for Gert Backman was the man's name. And um, the family sent me a, a, an order of service and he was he was actually he was buried eight years from the day when he was reported missing. <gasps> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I felt a lot of worth in that in getting getting their son. Um, home to them, you know that was that was pretty amazing, and, th- and that was the first one um, that uh, that I'd identified from from all this work of months and months of work of putting all these, you know, all this information into these spreadsheets, and it went on from there. We we did more. That alone would have been uh, justification to you, just the fact that you'd um, identified one yes. uh, unidentified deceased person but I'm just thinking to myself what a somber um oh not awkward just sad to to be at a cemetery and exhuming well three bodies to get to um Gert was his name did you say yes yes Gert yeah just to get to Gert um but was uh three bodies like what a somber occasion that would be God. It was yes, so we were, yeah, and we, we had to stand around, and we, we stood there for hours because we had to be there from from the start as police um, and um, and people from the uh, from the cemetery, and just to make certain that you know everything, every legal ramification was was okay. You know, you know, it sounds to me like you know when you said Tony's eyes lit up when he looked at the jaw. Yep. Uh, it sounds to me like when we were down at Mornington and we were searching for Anna and Gracie, you know how you said, well, you get so involved in a job and when Tony's eyes lit up and you knew that it was the right person, did you feel like just um, throwing your hands up in the air and like, yes, you know, like that sort of, yes, because I remember that's how we felt with Anna when we found uh, Anna in the bag. And people would find it hard to understand that emotion, like just that release of, oh, my God, we've done it. It's fantastic, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, you know, the belief the belief that you've, you know, you can identify this person and, 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 yeah. and oh, yeah, it was pretty amazing, yeah. Um, oh, I feel like <laughs> congratulating you. Like that is just <laughs> such a no, but it is. It just shows from from one person the fact that you can put a, a family's uh, emotion, like you can help a family put their loved one to rest. Like you couldn't. Yeah. There's not an amount of money that could do that. Um, what about, and we're only going to refer to this person as the blue man because that's how we knew him, but can you tell us about the blue man? Yeah, that, that was an interesting one because as, as a, um, when, when my sergeant and I did all these spreadsheets, when you start to compare them, you, look, you try to look at location, you look at dates, and, and, of course, you look at sex of the person missing, what they were wearing, you know, um, you know all their identifying features, but this man we we called him Blue Man. Um, he he clearly had um, mental issues, and he'd uh, he was in a bathing uh, shed down uh, down the beach there on the 
um, eastern suburbs there, and um, he'd painted himself blue and then committed suicide. And we tried for a long, long time. It was um, definitely my sergeant. She was, um, you know, if it was the last thing she did, she was going to identify this man. And um, we started to get to the stage where we could use DNA and we finally identified him as um, a fellow who had gone missing six months earlier and his car had been found right up in country Victoria. So that that one sort of made us realise you know, we've got to take the blinkers off and, and, and really open up because, you know, just because this man was found down in the eastern suburbs, it doesn't mean he's went missing from down there, you know. And, and also my first one, he, he went missing from interstate. And so, you, you know, you learn all these things as you go along. So um, he'd, he'd been missing for a number of years. Sorry, he'd been missing for six months between reporting missing and the body being found. But uh, he, he had been um, deceased for many years. And offhand, I can't quite remember how, how many. H, would, why did we ever find out, or did you ever find out, why he painted himself blue? No, no, there, there was just paint within the shed, and he's, he'd done that. Yeah, as I say, the the, the gentleman had um, had mental illness, and um, yeah. and uh, just to the listeners, can you hear? Because I can. Can you hear the passion? in Helen's voice talking about these jobs and I'm just thinking to myself because of your one person say you or your sergeant that determination like you said your sergeant was determined to uh, solve the blue man before she went on to other you know some somewhere else or whatever but just that determination you're just looking for that piece of the puzzle, aren't you? And you just keep looking and looking. Oh, I miss that. Oh, that. Yeah. It is such a a great feeling. Do you miss that feeling? Because yeah, I do. The solve. Yeah, the solve. It's, that's what you're after. Um, I suppose you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, it's it's good for your your own soul, but it's a, it's also good, as I said before, about you know getting you know these people back to their families. Oh, yes, gee. And uh, tell us a little bit about um, we can name the, uh, the the next one, Matthew Bibby, because he's um, been spoken about and written about quite a bit. Tell us your involvement with Matthew Bibby. Um, yeah, he, he was another one that identified, I identified from the sheets. He, uh, he went missing in November, early November. Uh, I, I, I can't remember the date, um, November 96, and it was only a few days later. That, um, that a body was located um, in the Yarra River, uh, down near Fairfield, I think it was. For some reason, that body was uh, not put on the LEAP system, the, the police system. The body was taken to the coroner's court and uh, it was never followed up. That's certainly one that should have been because there was only days in between that person going missing and that person's body being located. Yeah. And, that yeah, that was um, 2005. We, we, we did that, so what's that, nine years, almost you know, eight to nine years he'd been uh, he'd been buried in an unmarked grave. Yeah. I got a good work performance for that one. Um, and you just think, you know, that's, you know, that's your job, you know. That's what, that's what you do, you know. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. And, and so 
how did he how does that fall through the cracks like is that because somebody has not done the uh, as in um you know the police on the scene or a detective or the coroner's court like how could something like that just fall through the cracks and actually be and Matthew was buried as an unidentified person it makes you wonder yeah. well the mem- the member who's um from the police station should have gone back to the station and and entered the details onto the computer and then from the coroner's court there he would have been given a number coroner's yeah. court number and that should have been yeah. entered into the computer uh, but he should have gone back and checked all the missing persons report for you know previous couple of months uh, and clearly he didn't do that but again if he, if he's a if he's a junior member then he do, he doesn't he doesn't know to do that but that's when your sergeant comes in, you know. The, yeah, that's um, supervision, that's isn't it? it? That's it. And um, and it just particularly with a body, like particularly with any any body that's found, like that takes precedence over any job anywhere. Yep. I would have thought. Yeah, and you know, a lot of the time they just thought, oh yeah, he's committed suicide, and they just let it go. But that's not the point. That's uh, that that what always astounded me. Um, yeah, anyway, that's another kettle of fish. Mm. Yeah, it is. Oh, it is. Um, I wanted to touch on, look, there's so many more uh, jobs that we could talk about, but I suppose I just wanted to touch on the emotional toll that your role or policing in general took on you and how you managed it. You indicated that your last position at sex crimes was difficult in that sense. Can you tell us about that? Um. Yeah, after when missing persons uh, closed down, I went over to uh, well, we, we did uh, Operation Air, which was uh, a whole group of new detectives, and then we um, we did a lot more of this matching. And from there, that was going to close down to and come to an end because we were only funded for so long. So then I thought, okay, I'll go across to sex crimes. And there I worked with an analyst. Um, we'll call her Bubs, and she worked with you on Operation Collier. And I don't know if you remember her or not, but she was a very, very good um, good analyst and I learned a lot from her. I worked on a lot of high-profile cases at that, that, that time. I, I did a bit of work on Task Force SANO, which is investigation into historical child sexual abuse and the uh, religious orders, the rape and murder of Jill Ma, and uh, also I looked into uh, the offender, and I won't even mention him, I won't give his airtime to him, uh, into his past and and. We certainly found further crimes that he committed. And I suppose I, I liked getting into the cold case stuff, so although I worked on those those sorts of jobs as well, I did get into the cold case ones. Uh, and I remember there was one, this bloke, we got DNA on this bloke. And what, what had happened is um, 20 years earlier, he had picked up two young girls, females hitchhiking. He dropped one off and he draped the other girl. And um, so we turned up at his address one morning with a warrant for his arrest 20 years after the fact and there's his wife and child. Um, uh, you know, that was just would have been horrendous for that poor woman uh, and, and this man had, had thought he'd gotten away with it all these years. But the one that I suppose really got to me was um, the last one I worked on there was um, was another cold case that had occurred in the 80s. Uh, there were four young girls and over a period of months up in the northern suburbs uh, yeah, I, I really struggled with this case, reading the interviews and analysing all the information that, that was there. I, I started just to feel uncomfortable. 
uh, if that makes any sense. Certainly does. You know, those those poor girls, how on God's earth can they live with what's happened to them, you know? I had to put that job aside and I worked on something else and I asked for a transfer out of sex crimes. I just couldn't um, – I couldn't go on there. And um, I got a phone call a few months later from the detectives who told me that they'd um, identified the offender and uh, he, he had died in jail while he was serving time for rape. Yeah, you know, I just I just hope that those – those girls as women now had got some relief from, from that and that they were no longer, you know, looking over their shoulder for that piece of, mm. I won't even say. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And so, H, you said um, when we were preparing for today that, and if you don't mind me saying, it was the reading of the statements that really got to you. Can you tell us about that a bit? Um, just reading what... Um, what this man did to them, what he made them do, just and just one after the other after the other, and uh, how, how how can humans do that to each other? It's yeah, I yeah, and and just other statements too. You read and like um, you know things always stay with you. So one of the things, for example, public toilets. I, I don't go to a public toilet, you know, unless there's someone a friend with me. Yeah, very fearful of, of public toilets and and things like that. All these different things just stay in your mind always. Yeah, you know, just you're just aware of things. I suppose um, when you read a statement, and you would have had to read that to to analyse the job, the investigation, you would have to have read that statement back and forth. You would have to have known it inside out. And I suppose by reading that statement you're actually almost there, aren't you? Exactly. You, you read it so many times and you compare it to the next one. Then you compare that one to the next one and that one to the next one and you're just going over it and over it and over it, trying to find every tiny little bit of information there that uh, uh, that is the same in all of them. Yeah, I, um, I know what you mean because I was the one or, you know, <laughs> detectives or people that take sexual assault statements, you do almost have to put yourself there to, uh, like I can always remember when I used to take statements, the person, the and generally it was a, a woman or a young girl, and they were telling me about, say, the rape or the assault. And what you'd do is you'd put yourself there, or I would, I'd be able to put myself there and say, you know, like, Tell me what you're seeing. Tell me what you're feeling. Tell me what you're smelling. Uh, and and you could and to write the statement like you are actually there. And sometimes it was bloody hard to get out of it. You know, you'd think you were almost there. And I imagine what you're saying is by reading it, you feel you're there as well. And there's only so many of them you can read, isn't there? That's oh, of course. It's just the cruelty, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's other things too, like other, just. Even in general policing, you know, I, I remember going to a, um, a deceased lady uh, when I worked at Reservoir and um, I sat with um, the, her, her well, boyfriend um, in a car for eight hours. Now, at that stage, we didn't know if he was the murderer or just the, the grieving boyfriend. And I sat with him for eight hours doing small talk with that man. And you don't realise at the time what that does to you. But I remember three months later I was telling someone the story and we're at Christmas drinks and I just burst out crying um, when I told the story. So all these things, just they just go with you. Oh, they do. 
And I'm going to finish up, but I, I couldn't let this go without you mentioned before that you're involved in the Jill Maher investigation. And that really, <laughs> that almost changed Victoria in a lot of ways. How did you deal with that investigation? Because, oh, that that was scary on so many levels because we've all been there. Yep. So many young women have been there where you want to uh, you want to leave somewhere, you think, oh, I shouldn't, and then you think, oh, I don't know, you might have had a few too many to drink, you've had an argument with somebody, you just want to go and you just want to get some fresh air and, I don't know, walk home or walk down the street, and that's what poor Jill did. Yes. And she that's where she met her fate. How did you deal with that investigation? Um, I, I didn't get right in depth in, into it. I started off doing a, a, a bit of work on it and then – I went on to starting to look at him. So it broke that investigation up a little bit for me. But it's still all, it was still all around you. You know, you're hearing it and you're, and you're being involved and you're assisting where you can and that type of thing. But, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that, that got us all. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's not many people that wouldn't get H. No. Well, Helen, because of you and your sergeant, identifying a problem with unidentified remains, not having been cross-checked against missing persons record, <laughs> a task force formed down the track, and in three years, 30 unidentified remains were identified by dental records, DNA and circumstantial evidence. Like, that's something that you and your sergeant uh, should feel so proud of because you've given at least 30 families an answer, at least. Yeah. And I think, I don't know about you, but I think I'd rather know than wonder for the rest of my years about what had happened to a loved one, although it's an answer, obviously, that's never easy to digest or accept. But we both know, don't we, too many families who've never found out what happened to a loved one or where they are, if they're still alive or deceased. It would just be and is heartbreaking, isn't it? It is, yes. And and just to say that it, it certainly wasn't just my sergeant myself. There was uh, at Ballier, there was a heap of uh, detectives there that did uh, a lot of good work as well. Yeah, yeah, it, yes. Well, Helen, um, thank you. Uh, thanks for everything you did for so many victims of crime, but also for the fun and laughs that you provided in the office uh, when, to be honest, there wasn't much laughing to be done. <laughs> And thanks on behalf of all those missing people who fell through the cracks and didn't have a voice because you gave them dignity when there was none. Many, um, having been buried unidentified in an unmarked grave at a cemetery, you gave those left behind the opportunity to grieve and say goodbye to their loved ones, which without you and your colleagues and all the detectives with Bel Air, et cetera, that would have been impossible. And I suppose I'll finish up by saying what a gift you gave them. Well, thank you for your lovely kind words. I love, I love doing it. I love doing. I love doing the job. And and uh, you you start to talk about it like this, and yeah, you you miss it. You realise how much you miss it, don't you? H. <laughs> yeah. You do. You miss it. Yeah. Yeah. When, yeah, when you, you feel said, like you've got more to give. Oh, hey, don't worry. I'll have you back. But just uh, <laughs> finishing. You know when you said about the detectives that went to the guy he'd uh, raped a couple of girls. I think you'd said, and the detectives went to his his door and knocked on his door, and there's his wife and his child, and he'd got away with it for twenty years. Yeah, there is very, very little more satisfying 
than going and knocking on somebody's door and this is what I miss, when they think they've got away with a horrendous crime. Yep. And you go and knock on their door and just see the blood run from their face. Oh, I miss that. Yes. God. <laughs> that certainly happened to him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, couldn't happen to a nicer man. All right. Um, well, thanks again, H. It's been a pleasure. Would you come back? Oh, I don't know if I've, been, if I've got anything worth talking about anymore. <laughs> oh, probably. No, you're right. Probably not. Nobody would be interested. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thanks again, H. Thanks for having me. All the best. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details